Would you join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Daniel now? Um, if you're newer to our church family, usually, we usually take this time to consider God's Word. We believe that the Bible is true and that it's powerful because it's God's Word to us. And so for our sermons, we open up God's Word and we seek to understand it and respond to it. So we're spending these months here in the book of Daniel, and we're moving through it about one chapter at a time. So you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Now, one of the reasons why we're in the book of Daniel is because we need this right now. This book exists to help God's people to thrive in difficult times like ours. So, Daniel grew up in Israel, and King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, conquered them, and they took many Jewish people away from their homeland and brought them to Babylon. So, they're in exile in a completely different culture than they were used to. Um, When they were in Israel, the government and the culture was deeply shaped by God's words, certainly not perfectly. We find out that God's people, though the Lord was so gracious to them, by and large, most of them seemed to actually despise the Lord in their hearts, but their, their government and their laws and their culture was still shaped by God's word in so many ways. But Babylon, where these Israelites find themselves, is a pluralistic society. The government was against God's people. The culture was morally unhinged in many ways, and God's people were sometimes a persecuted minority. But God called them to seek the good of the city that they were in, uh, to be a blessing to the place where they were. And that's what Daniel did, and that's what we've been seeing in these past several weeks together. Daniel was faithful to God while engaging with his culture and the people the Lord placed him among. And so, this is relevant to us as Christians right now because we are exiles in our world. Our true home is with Christ in heaven now, and we look forward to the new creation to come with our Lord and all His people. And James and Peter, followers of Jesus and apostles, both call Christians exiles in this world, no matter what kind of culture we find ourselves in. We are exiles in this world because this world is not our home at this time. And yet, just like Daniel, we are called to seek the good of our society and our communities. Jesus sends us into the world for the good of the world. He says, you are a light to the world. And so, our culture, in many ways, is becoming more and more like Babylon. It's increasingly pluralistic and morally unhinged, and God has placed us here on purpose. Daniel is showing us week after week that God is in charge and that we have a role. We're in exile, but He calls us to be faithful witnesses in exile. And we don't just need to survive this as we've seen, right? We don't just need to kind of buckle up and hold fast merely in the midst of cultural upheaval and change. We actually are called to thrive in exile We can, by God's grace, and we can be God's means to cause others to thrive. So, we come now to Daniel chapter 5, and this chapter shows us how God can bring down an unrighteous king and kingdom and give it to another. God can do whatever He wants. He rules heaven, and as we've seen, He rules earth. Jesus, as we saw last week from Revelation 1, He's called not just the ruler in general 
but He is the ruler of the kings on earth right now. And so we see God's sovereignty over the kingdoms of the earth here. And so we need to know that God is in charge of the leaders and the nations of this world. This gives us a great stability, a great comfort, and the strength we need then to be faithful witnesses. So let's read Daniel 5 together um, before we consider it more carefully. So Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered, And said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That's a sobering story. Uh, Let's consider this in the three main parts. We see the king's feast, and then Daniel's speech, and the writing on the wall. So first, the king's feast. This chapter opens with this king, Belshazzar, having a great feast. Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. So this is a giant banqueting hall and a great feast. It's been 70 years since the beginning of Daniel. So a lot of time has already passed through this book so far. Daniel opens this book with King Nebuchadnezzar taking Daniel and his friends into exile, and Daniel is now probably in his 80s. Um, Now, some of you I know have signed up for um, a men's growth group called Finishing Well. It's so important for us at every stage of our life to consider what does it mean to finish well. And here's Daniel finishing well. We've actually seen him as a model of a faithful witness in his culture from all of his ages, from when he was a teenager in chapter 1 to his middle ages, and now in his 80s. And here is King Belshazzar. Now, it's important to know that when this chapter refers to him as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, that doesn't necessarily mean he was his biological son, and in fact, it seems that he wasn't. In those cultures, they called anyone in their lineage a son, so a grandson, great-grandson, or even kings called their successors sons. And so Belshazzar's presence here has raised some questions uh, for a while about the historical accuracy of the Bible. So I just want to make us aware of that for a few moments here because it's really important. This chapter says that Belshazzar was the final king of Babylon, right? They're conquered right at the end of this chapter. But for a long time, this chapter was the only historical record that we had of him. And actually, this seemed to contradict what we knew from other sources, Other historical records said that Nabonidus 
was the final king of Babylon. So that seemed to contradict here in the Bible that says Belshazzar is this final king. But then in the 1800s, an inscription was found, and it did say that Nabonidus was the final king, but it also said that in his last years, he went away on a military campaign, and while he was away, he appointed his son, named Belshazzar, to be the king in his place in Babylon. So they were co-rulers of a sense. And this makes sense, by the way, of what sounds odd otherwise when Belshazzar offers Daniel to be third in the kingdom, right? Why not second? Um, Who's he skipping over? Well, he was second. So he's offering Daniel the third place. So he is co-ruler with his dad here. Now, here's what this teaches us. I've learned to be very slow to be thrown off by apparent contradictions in the Bible. Um, or things that don't seem to line up with other historical records. Because there are a lot of places in the Bible that seem at first glance like inaccuracies or contradictions. And I've spent a lot of time over the years studying them because I think it's important. I think we should. If we believe this is God's Word, then this is truth, and it should accord with all truth that we know. And so we shouldn't just dismiss concerns. But here's what I found. I've gained even more confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible as I've spent time studying places that at first glance seem to have questions. I still have unanswered questions, and sometimes we have to wait for an archaeological discovery like this to confirm what the Bible does say. Um, But so often there are very plausible solutions to our questions, and this example in Daniel 5 should at least caution us against too quickly being thrown off by apparent contradiction. Sometimes we just need to think harder. Sometimes we just need to spend time uh, reading a verse in context. Sometimes we just need to be aware of what is, uh, what has been found archaeologically or historically. So, it's important to note that, you know, if you were in the 1700s dismissing the Bible because of a chapter like this, and then you lived, and then the archaeological discoveries kind of found, you're like, well, whoops, right? So, you don't want to do that. So, we want to be trusting in God's Word with intellectual faithfulness, and that means engaging with questions like this, but in examples like this, we see that God's Word does prove true time and time again, as it always will. So, Belshazzar's ruling with his dad, or while his dad's away, and he throws this huge party. It's an incredibly large feast. A thousand leaders are there, and Belshazzar then does a defiant act against God. Verse 2 says this. You can read it with me. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, I don't think it's the case that they just kind of ran out of vessels to drink from, and so he remembered that they had a stash. Um, This is an act of defiance. When Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem and brought those vessels to Babylon, he put them in the temples of his gods as a way of saying, our gods defeated the God of Israel. We have strength. We have power. Our gods are the strongest. And now Belshazzar goes a step further. He brings them out to use them at his party. And then they drink wine from them and praise not God, but verse 4 says, the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So, this is an intentional act of mockery against Israel's God, the one true God. And why did he do it? 
Well, Daniel will later say that it was pride, and we'll consider that. And as we think through their situation, it seems like this is a display of prideful self-sufficiency. So, if we think about this, this is the last night of this man's kingdom. Now, he doesn't know that. The Medo-Persians have been threatening them in recent years. They just defeated part of Belshazzar's army 50 miles away. Belshazzar knows this. He knows that they could be at the gates at any time. So, why throw a party in the midst of that military threat? Well, it seems like they are celebrating their security. The walls of the city were huge in Babylon. They had plenty of space in there to grow food. The Euphrates River was channeled through the city, so they had plenty of water supply. They didn't feel threatened at all. So it seems like he's just doubling down on his self-confidence. They don't turn to God in repentance or asking for help. They drink from God's sacred vessels, and they praise their own idols whom they've trusted in. And so this whole leadership of this kingdom is joining together in this act of mockery and defiance toward God. And this is what idolatry looks like. It's taking what is God's and using it in a way that dishonors God. This isn't an ancient sin. It's common to us all. Idolatry is taking God's gifts, and rather than praising Him for these gifts and His goodness to us, we ignore Him. We love the gifts but not the giver. We love the creation, but we don't honor the Creator. And then we often can go one step further when we use these gifts in a way that can directly even mock God, using the gifts that He gives in a way that are against His clear good commands. And so at this very moment, God crashes the party. A hand appears and writes on the wall. This is where we get that phrase, seeing the writing on the wall. And it's pretty terrifying. And so Belshazzar is afraid, and he can't understand the message, but he knows it seems ominous. And so this leads us second to Daniel's speech. So the queen, probably the queen mother here, encourages the king to invite Daniel in to interpret it. So Daniel comes in, in his 80s now. He's remained faithful to God for his lifetime, and he's been a man of compassion, of conviction, and of courage that we've seen over and over so far. And so he walks in to this perhaps drunken, idolatrous feast. And he addresses two issues with the king before he gives the interpretation. First, he addresses the king's pride. Daniel reminded him about what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, this previous king from chapter, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had money, he had power, he had a huge kingdom. And Daniel reminds us in verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. So God humbled him, and he learned the lesson that God is the one true king. And God sets up kings, and he brings down kings, and he can do that however and whenever he wants. God is in charge, and he can humble those who walk in pride. That was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar said he learned. And this is a theme through the whole book of Daniel. Pride looks out at our lives and says, look what I did. I deserve good things. And the opposite of this is humility, which says, look what God did. Look at how kind God has been to me, and I don't deserve any of this. Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson, and he honored the true God. 
Belshazzar knew this story, and he didn't learn the lesson. Look at verse 22. And you, his son, probably in the sense of grandson or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So, with this issue of pride in particular, God has given us many warnings in His Word. The same theme is repeated over and over and over. Here's Proverbs 18.12, before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Isn't that a contrast to what we're seeing in this chapter? Before the downfall of Belshazzar, we see a haughty heart. And before Daniel's honor, we see his humility. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself, Jesus says, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, pride is at the heart of our sinful condition. Pride is about having really big thoughts of yourself and really small thoughts of God and others. Humility is the opposite. It's having a rightly proper large view of God and a generous view toward others. Daniel's second point in this speech is idolatry. Belshazzar drank from God's vessels and yet praised the idols. Look at the end of verse 23. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, which, you, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. That phrase, the God in whose hand is your breath. God holds His breath in His hand, but He used that breath to praise idols. He didn't honor God with His breath. And it's the same for us. God holds our breath in His hands. He is sovereign over every breath you take. Every breath is a gift. And so, the question this raises for us to reflect on here is, do we thank God for every breath we take? Do we have a posture that as the days go on in our life, there's an increasing amount of times where we use our breath to thank Him and praise Him? Breath is a gift. It's grace. And so, the question from this story is, how do we use our breath? Do we use our breath to speak words that honor Him, to thank Him, to honor and encourage others, to speak words of kindness? As Christians, we believe that God is gracious to us. He has spoken words of grace to us in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we have been transformed by this, and we're transformed to respond with thankfulness to Him and then reflect that to others and speak words of grace to others. But if we don't receive God's grace and transforming power, we'll be stuck, turned inward on ourselves, puffed up in pride, set against the Lord of heaven, and that's where Belshazzar is. So, third, the writing on the wall. Daniel now tells him what the writing means. God wrote those four words, meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson. It essentially means his days are numbered, and he'll find out soon that he's at the last number, and his kingdom's about to be divided. God's bringing him down, and he's bringing his whole kingdom down. That very night, he was killed, 
and his kingdom was given to the Medo-Persians. If you were here, when we looked at chapter 2, we saw that image that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the head of gold and then the chest of silver. And if you turn that sideways, it was a timeline of kingdoms. The Lord was bringing down and transferring to others. Now, it was a transfer from Babylon to the Medo-Persians. God's in charge. He's fulfilling His plan. And we know how this happened from historical records. The Medo-Persians were already on the edge of the city at that very night while they're feasting. And Belshazzar and these thousand rulers are celebrating their self-sufficiency. They thought their walls couldn't be breached, but that Euphrates River ran through the city. And so the army redirected the water flow, and at the point where the river entered the city, that caused the water level to go down so that they could, or some of them could sneak underneath and enter into the city, open the gates, and bring the armies flooding in. Belshazzar thought he was invincible. And God had numbered his days. Jesus told a parable like this story in Luke chapter 12. It's a made-up story to make a point. He said, a rich man had so many crops and so many possessions that he thought to himself in all of his contented self-sufficiency, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm just going to build more barns and bigger barns to hold all of the things that I have. And he said that to himself Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then here's Jesus' lesson. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying that if we live like Belshazzar, and you don't have to be a king to live like this, then we are fools because we're rich toward ourselves. We're laying up treasures for ourselves. We're living for ourselves. And we're living as if God hasn't numbered our days. We're living as if we're not accountable to Him. We're living as if we won't stand before Him in judgment. And so Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth. Because the reality is that our life is short, it's a vapor, it's passing. Fast forward from now, a number of decades, and this room, if it's still here and Lord willing, has people worshiping Him, will not have any of us here. We'll have a new crop of people in future generations. We will have stood before the Lord. And the Bible prepares us for that day and beyond because we're accountable to God. And so, how do we respond to this? First, I don't see how we can read this and not feel the warning. This is a sober reminder of the inevitability of judgment. Every one of us will stand before God. God brings Belshazzar down at the end of his life, and it's a picture of how the Lord will bring all of us into judgment to stand before Him, and we do not want an eternal sentence of death given over us on that day. God opposes the proud. So if you're hearing this story this morning and you are alarmed from this warning, that is a good thing. It is a gift so that you can respond in a way that Belshazzar failed to respond. Uh, it's, It's a gift so that you can turn to the Lord, because the Lord is being patient with you. 
And he's being kind to you to give you this reminder this morning. As long as you are alive, he's being patient toward you. And the response then that he calls you to make is not to clean yourself up this morning. It's not to promise to do better. In fact, that would be prideful because that would be saying that we actually have the capacity to improve ourselves on our own in such a way that can compensate for our sin and pride and earn God's favor. No, our response is to do the opposite, to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves before Him, to admit before the Lord that we need His forgiveness and we need His transforming power to change our hearts. And the good news is that God is eager to show His grace in these ways. He is eager to give His transforming power. And this is why Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died so that He could take that final judgment of condemnation upon Himself on the cross. And then He rose again so that He might send His Spirit to give us new hearts, to humble ourselves, to receive His forgiveness, and to be transformed, to have an increasingly humble posture toward Him for the rest of our life and forever. And so, He invites you this morning. If you are hearing this warning, He invites you to come to Him, to come to Him with empty hands of faith and receive. Receive His grace. Receive His transforming power. Come under the leadership, the good and gracious leadership of the Lord Jesus. And if you do this, I encourage you to please let a Christian friend know, if you have one, or let a leader or myself um, know. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to continue following Jesus. Second, this is a great comfort that God is in charge. He can bring down an unrighteous king. He can bring down the world's strongest kingdom and give it to others. This is why Daniel could have such poise when he walked into that room. Everyone in that room is terrified. Daniel walks in with poise because he's learned through, he's even seen the Lord bring down kings already and raise them up. And he knows that he is trusting in the true king. And so no matter what happens to the kingdoms of this world that we're living among, we have the true king in heaven who's in charge. And then we can be deeply comforted then because we're living under the ultimate rule of a good king in heaven. And so we may fear for America's future or for what may happen with a nuclear North Korea or Iran or what China plans to do in the future. We don't know what countries will do, what countries will rise or fall, what countries we proud or humble. But this chapter shows us that God is in control. He can bring down any king and kingdom and give it to another. Some of these nations that we're aware of that have corrupt government, have faithful believers living among them, humble believers, and we're united to them in faith, and we join with them in praying for the Lord to humble their own government leaders, and the Lord can do it. We have great confidence because He's done it so often again. And one day, the Lord will bring down all prideful kingdoms. There will be a great transitional moment when the Lord Jesus returns And all kingdoms are brought down, and they give way to His good and righteous eternal kingdom of peace and justice. When Jesus returns, He'll bring swift judgment to the oppressive rulers of this world. And we need to remember this, because the Bible repeatedly holds out this hope, not just the hope of 
um, kind of a vague, fuzzy future or merely an individual future of being with the Lord in heaven, but it holds up this hope that as history progresses, there will be a historical moment when Jesus returns and deals with the prideful and oppressive kingdoms of this earth. We have this hope, and it will give way to a new and eternal kingdom where all those who trust Him with humble faith will reign with Him forever. And so this is part of the good news of the gospel. Not just that Jesus saves us from judgment, but that He is coming to make all things right and new. Daniel had this future, and so do all who trust in Christ. So this is what we remember as we remember who Jesus is, and we remember the Lord's Supper, which we'll be um, partaking of together in just a few minutes here, that Jesus is the true King. He gave His life to take our judgment so we don't need to live in fear of writing on the wall that, that we see in this chapter. He took our sins upon Himself when He held up the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, which is given for you. And when He took the cup and He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you and poured out for you. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, I know many of you have already grabbed some on your way um, to your seat when you came in, uh, but if you are trusting in Christ and you've not yet uh, grabbed the bread and the cup, then you can do so in the next few minutes. Um, servers will come down the aisle, so you can just get their attention by putting up your hand as you see them walk down the aisle, and they'd be happy to um, give you some. That'll happen as we sing this next song. And then after the song, I'll come back up and then we'll eat and drink together. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity and you have questions, we'd love to get to know you and talk through those questions. And I encourage you, uh, rather than eat and drink, I encourage you to consider uh, what it would mean to trust in Jesus. And for all of us, let's use this time in these next uh, few minutes to reflect on Christ, uh, repent of any prideful or unconfessed sins that we have, and rejoice in His promise to make all things new, set all things right. Respond to His Word here. It's a great opportunity to respond to what He has spoken to you through His Word and how the Spirit may have convicted or encouraged you this morning. So, um, let's pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word to us here. We receive this from You, both the warning and the comfort. And we receive them both as gifts of grace because you tell us the truth that we need to hear so that we don't have to live in denial. We don't have to make things up to make ourselves feel better. And so we pray that in these next few minutes even, you would continue to stir our hearts by your spirit to increase our affection for you in Christ, to increase our thankfulness toward you, to convict us of any pride in our hearts. We pray that you would give us a real sense of unity together as a church family here as we do this. Pray this in Jesus' name.